Anyways, let's take the book of Acts, or turn your, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. And if you're just joining us and you weren't here last week, we began uh, Luke's book, uh, the Acts of the Apostles last week. This is a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, in your Bible, you have the Gospels. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke was written by Luke. Acts, which we are reading today, and we'll be in this for some time, was also written by Luke, and it is intended to be one volume. And last week, we learned about, after the resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days and appeared and proved himself alive to his followers. And he ascended into heaven, but before doing so, he told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for he would give them the promised Holy Spirit. And with that background, let's read chapter 2. We won't read the entirety of the chapter. We'll read through verse 41. And like I said last week, I read out of the English Standard Version. And uh, the reason we don't put verses on the screen is because we want to encourage you to bring your Bibles to church. Or if you have an app, you can download the ESV. Uh, I don't think it's superior, it's just the one that I read out of, and so if you want to be on the same page as we read through it together, that's the translation that I read out of. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Fruia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what they uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible For him to be held by it. For David says concerning him. I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for your mercy. That though we are guilty and deserve not love and mercy, 
you give us love and mercy simply because we cry out to you. And Father, we gather here in your name today and we say that we are not worthy of your love and your mercy. We are sinners and we have all rebelled against you. But we thank you, God, and we praise you that according to your great mercy and the great love with which you have loved us, you have made us your children. You have redeemed us from our sin, and you have given us your Holy Spirit. Let this truth just become even more real to us. Let it start to define our very existence. And may you do that through your word this morning by your spirit. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. The book of Acts is filled with a number of incredible arguments and sermons. And this one by Peter, starting off the book of Acts, is remarkable. So what happened here? What happened at Pentecost? Now, Pentecost, if you don't know, is simply a Jewish festival. It was the second of the annual harvest festivals. It comes 50 days after Passover, and that's why there were in Jerusalem... Uh, a number of devout Jewish men and women from every nation. Now, every nation isn't a literal every nation. I mean, there are parts of the world that you could not traverse at this time in history. Um, but it was widely represented that, to the extent that it was possible, men from all over, Jewish men from all over, came to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. So the disciples were doing what Jesus had instructed, and they were waiting to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And as it were, that they were togethered in one place, and suddenly they heard what sounded like a mighty rushing wind. And they saw what looked like to be flaming tongues rest upon each one of them. And this was the manner in which they received the promised Holy Spirit. It is an important thing to notice that Peter describes this with metaphor. So in your mind, you should not necessarily be looking at a literal flaming tongue. And, but Peter describes this, or excuse me, Luke describes this with um, metaphor. And it's probably that they just they did not know how else to explain this significant act of God, the manner in which they received the Holy Spirit. But they heard something like a mighty rushing wind. And then above each of them, something like a flaming tongue of fire. And they received the promised Holy Spirit. And then subsequently, a miracle happened where they were able to speak in other languages. And the other devout Jewish men heard this. Likely what they heard was the sound of the rushing wind. And when they came, they found that they could hear the disciples speaking in their own language, even though all of them were Galileans. And they couldn't make any sense of this. What is going on? Now, this passage and the, the receiving of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues is a major point of doctrinal controversy in the church today. As it would happen this week, um, just one of these... I mean, the controversy is ongoing, but there was just a heated social media war related to the, uh, the gifts of speaking in tongue or, or the charismatic gifts, if you will. And it is such a heated debate. Maybe you've been caught up in it. You know, our tongues for today, what about healings and, and, and whatnot? And often these are referred to maybe as charismatic 
kinds of gifts. And it's such a heat. I'm just continually amazed that people, the Christians that I generally respect and any, on any given day might look to them for advice, how they can just turn to nasty rhetoric, ad hominem attacks, and get so passionate over this doctrinal issue. I do understand it in part because in many denominations, um, signs and wonders are fabricated. They're just made up. And they're used in an exploitive sense to take advantage of other people and to elevate themselves in their own spiritual standing. So in that respect, I do understand why there is uh, a point of controversy. And as it relates to this passage, there are really kind of three distinct views relating to uh, trying to answer what, what happened, what, what, what was this, and what's its relevancy for today. Uh, the first view is that what is taking place here in the first four verses is the same kind of thing that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And if you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that's where Paul does an extensive uh, discussion on, t- on, on the use of tongues. And what was happening in the Corinthian church is that when the church would gather together, there would be people that are speaking in an ecstatic, unintelligible language that may be referring to kind of a heavenly language, an angelic language. Uh, but the purpose of Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 14, it isn't to dismiss it and say, don't do it at all. Paul, in fact, says, I'm glad that I speak in this kind of unintelligible language more than you do. But his purpose in 1 Corinthians 14 is to provide order and perspective for this gift. Paul goes on to teach in 1 Corinthians 14 that this kind of speech that nobody can understand is edifying for you, the individual, but nobody else, unless there is somebody that has the ability to interpret it. Paul goes on to give perspective saying, well, let me just read what what Paul has to say about this. This is in 1 Corinthians Uh, chapter 14, let me just read verse 9. Paul, in giving some perspective to it, says, So with with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. And then picking up in verse 13, Paul says this, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So again, maybe you've been a part of uh, church traditions where there is the speaking of tongues, and the Pauline perspective on it is that is fine that you speak in tongues. It's edifying to you. And if you do this in a corporate gathering, you should pray that there's someone there to interpret. Otherwise, this is going to be entirely useless. Moreover, he begins this book by saying, you should desire gifts that help other people, not just gifts that help you. But the question is, is this what is happening in Acts chapter 2? Is this the same thing? And I don't think it is. 
And the reason is it seems to be that Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians 14 uh, something that is a two-part process. There is this ecstatic, unintelligible language. Perhaps it's an angelic language or something heavenly. But it's a language that nobody understands unless there is somebody there to interpret. So it seems to be kind of a two-part process. Someone utters an unintelligible speech. Someone else comes alongside and translates. And that's not what we have here happening in the book of, of Acts. So the second view is that this is similar maybe then to what Paul is describing. But rather than needing the work of an interpreter, there was kind of a second miracle of that of understanding. And it was that they were speaking in an unintelligible language, but there was a second miracle. And the hearers were able to understand it. And that's possible. I don't think that is the case. And part of it is that in chapter or verse 11, uh, it, it says, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So it seems to be that what happened here isn't that there was a secondary miracle of understanding it seems to be that there was, what happened in acts chapter 2 is that upon receiving the holy spirit there was a manifestation of the spirit that miraculously resulted in the disciples speaking different languages that the hearers heard and understood and what the disciples were preaching is, well, we'll get to that in just a second. Let me just offer one. Well, I won't even offer that right now. I'll save that for later. Because here's, here's what we need to do. We need to put aside for the moment our broader questions about tongues and their relevancy for today. Are these gifts still relevant for today, for example? The, the gift of being able to speak in another language, does that miracle happen today? What about the gift of tongue and speaking an unintelligible language that's edifying to you, the believer, and perhaps others, if there's an interpreter? Is that still alive and today? We need to, for the moment, put aside that question. It's a good question. You should have that question, but put it aside for the moment because if we don't, we will miss the significance of the event according to Peter. And the significance of the event isn't whether or not you'll be able to do this or not. That's not the primary significance of this. Because moving on, when the people come... They hear this thing, they hear the noise, they come, they hear people speaking in their own language, and they go, what does this mean? You know, good Bible reading involves look for repeating repetitive words. You have the word bewildered, you have amazed used twice, you have the word astonished used, and this is all in the first nine verses. And the words in English do pretty good at capturing the sense, but even in Greek, it really conveys, you get this sense of they are there and they don't know what the heck is going on. It's not amazed as in like, wow, that's pretty cool. No, it's like, what in the world is happening? How is this possible? What is going on? A little bit of fear here. It isn't like they just showed up and were like, wow, this is, this is pretty cool. I wasn't expecting this at Pentecost. Do they do this every year? What, is this a new thing? No, they're freaking out in a sense. And some people's response is, they're drunk. And I love Peter's response. It wasn't, no, brethren, don't you know that the faithful do not partake of wine? His response is, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Which I think is funny. And I wonder if Peter used that as humor. 
So but how does Peter answer the question, what's going on here? He says that one of the things that the disciples were saying in another language comes from Joel. And what Peter says is happening is that we are in the last days. What you're experiencing right now is a sign that we are in the last days. Where God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And then he goes through and offers other signs that will be part of this. But the significance of, the, of it being in the last days is the last days is a period of time in history where the Lord will judge the whole earth in a final and ultimate sense. If you look at the progression of history in terms of epics or periods of time, what the disciples understood the significance of the receiving of the Holy Spirit was is that we are now in the last stage of history before the Lord will come back on that magnificent day and judge the whole world. But even that is not just doom and gloom. He ends that, given the significance of in the end times, uh, there will be signs like this in the end times. There will be judgment in the end times. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who is the Lord? That's the next part of Peter's argument here. Peter begins talking about Jesus. He says, men of Israel, know this. Jesus of Nazareth, he was a man that was attested to you by God himself. Which means God validated and proved to you that Jesus came from God. And he did this by many signs, mighty works, and many wonders. This Jesus, who was attested to you by God, was delivered up to be killed. Now, lest anyone be deceived as to what happened here, Peter says this was God's plan, okay? This wasn't a surprise. You didn't rise up for one moment and have your one day where you got God. No, Peter's saying this was part of God's plan, that Jesus would be handed over and killed and crucified. Still... He says, this Jesus was delivered up. You killed him. Even though this was part of God's plan, you killed him. You used the hands of lawless men, and you killed him. But God raised him up from the dead. In fact, it was never possible that Jesus could remain dead. And then Peter makes this argument from David, saying David knew this to be true. And he quotes David here. And this passage is, David is showing his hope of the resurrection. Both for himself and for the Messiah. That his hope was that the Holy One, God would not let him see Hades or corruption. That he would be raised. And Peter says, now who is Let's be clear. Who is David talking about? Is he talking about himself? Who is he talking about? And Peter says, well, first, David's dead. He says this in verse 29, and he makes that point. David is dead. He's buried. We know where his tomb is. So who is David talking about? And how does he have this kind of knowledge? 
Well, Peter says David was both a prophet and David received a promise from God that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. How is that possible then? So with these two truths about David, both that he was a prophet and he had received this special revelation, this knowledge from God concerning one of his descendants, Peter says David, what he's talking about here is he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Now be diligent and discerning, or what's the word? Be careful to not let the word Christ become Jesus' last name. Christ is a very, it's a title, meaning Messiah, one who will save and deliver. That's what Christ means. So Peter is saying, David, what David was writing about was the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not be abandoned by God to Hades. He would not see flesh corruption. So do you see Peter's argument so far? Peter's argument is Jesus was raised from the grave, and it was not possible for him not to be raised. Even David knew this, that one day the Messiah that would sit on the throne and restore all things, he would be raised from the grave and this Jesus, God raised up. And we are witnesses of it. And now Jesus, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, has received with permission the Holy Spirit to give to us. And that's what you're seeing. That's what you're hearing. And then just to make sure, he says, David didn't do this. David did not ascend into the heavens. Jesus did, and he has poured out his spirit among us, and that's what you're seeing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that Jesus Christ is Lord. You have to ignore that for just a second. Oh my gosh, this is the most dramatic part too. It's so hard, I think, for us to outside maybe the spirit of God in our time here to be moved by this, because this is a very con culturally contextualized message. Peter said more things than just this, by the way. We know that because Luke said in verse 40, and, he, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort him. So Luke, this is not everything Peter said. But Peter is arguing for the divinity of Jesus Christ and the fact that he is the Messiah this was God's plan all along. So that's, you get Peter's argument here? In response to the question, what is happening here? Peter says, this is a sign that we are in the end times where judgment will come. So repent of your sins and to call on the Lord and be saved. Jesus Christ is Lord. He was attested to by God through many signs and many miracles, and he was resurrected. David had the hope. David had the knowledge that the Messiah would be resurrected, and you all missed it. Worse, you killed him. Can you imagine the sinking pit of despair that these devout Jewish men and women would be feeling? And that's what the text says. It says, cut to the heart which is fair enough of a translation. It's really kind of hard to translate the Greek here, but you know it, it describes this intense pain of remorse. I mean, as a child, you may have felt it when you get called in the principal's office. You know that feeling? Or you get called in the boss's office, or you get called out for the sin that you've been hiding, 
and you're painfully aware of your guilt, you know that feeling, right? Can you imagine? I don't know if there's ever been the kind of feeling like this. The remorse of we missed it. David saw it. We missed it. Worse, we killed him. And we're in the end times. What's going to happen to us? Is judgment now, is that the next thing Peter's going to say? Is the next thing we're going to do is we're going to see the Lord coming back to kill us all? So they say, what shall we do? And can you imagine how good these following words must have felt and sounded? Where Peter says, repent, which means change your mind. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the Holy Spirit, which is just mind-blowing, isn't it? They get drawn to this thing, this this miraculous outpouring of God's spirit. They don't know what is going on. Then they move to this progression of a state of fear of knowing we're in the end times. This is a sign of the end times. We've killed the Messiah. And Peter's words of hope to them is repent and be saved. And you'll be given the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine how good of news that would have been to hear? Which is, of course, the same good news for us today. And so what did they do? Many received this word and were baptized. And thousands, 3,000 souls were saved that day. We are in the end times. Now, when you think about that, Often we try to then figure out, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean within my lifetime? Does that mean by a certain date? Uh, This is when the Lord will come back. What has Jesus said in regarding that? Will we know? No. In fact, he said that in chapter 1. It's not for you to know this. The Lord has fixed a day on which he'll judge the world. And it's not for us to know. And you can understand why, right? If we literally knew the day Jesus was coming back, what would number of people do? Live however the heck they wanted until like the day before. Or maybe the week before just to make sure they got it right, you know? That's at least one of a number of reasons. So we are living in a time in history where we should not be surprised that the Lord returned today. And he may not return for another thousand years. We are in the final period of history. And we are to wait eagerly with the anticipation of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ to judge the world. God has attested to this reality by many signs. The resurrection of beginning with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, not even beginning with the resurrection of Jesus. Perhaps the most visible sign of this was the resurrection of Jesus, and then the subsequent giving of the Holy Spirit. So what are we to do? We too are like the many that were saved that day. We are to repent of our sins. 
be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, which means become a follower of Jesus Christ. That phrase, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, means this. So often in the church when we say just preach the gospel, we kind of reduce the gospel to this, this and the plan of salvation to this one sentence that's kind of like just ask Jesus into your heart. That doesn't really help. What does that mean? Tell that to your kids. That's fine. But you're a grown man and woman. What is, what is Peter saying here? He's saying this. Change your mind and follow Jesus. And ask for forgiveness, and you will be saved, and you will be given the Holy Spirit. So for us today, the, the appropriate response to this message is what we saw done by the many Jewish men and women here. The appropriate response to, be con to being confronted with the horror of your sin and the sinking feeling in your stomach is to repent to change your mind, stop doing what you're doing, and follow Jesus Christ. And a true sign, or a sign of true repentance, I should say, is that you initiate the altar call. Have you ever struggled with altar calls at church service and gatherings? I have in many cases. A lot of times it feels forced, right? You bring the music down. You sing an emotional song maybe 17 times if you need to to coerce a response out of people, it feels often. And, and maybe I'm being a little too critical of altar calls. But do you, do you notice this in the passage? They, the hearers of God's word, initiated the altar call. What must we do? And that is often a true sign of repentance. It's when you say, what, what do I need to do? Tell me, I will do it. So for those of you today that have been convicted by, of your sin by God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit drawing you to God, repent of your sins and ask what you need to do. And the last thing that we are to do is like the disciples, we need to be bold and make culturally relevant arguments that expose sin and call people to repentance. That's the other thing about this, this passage. This was culturally relevant. Who was the audience Peter was speaking to? He was devout Jewish men. So you know the amount of work that I needed to do this week to really understand the purpose of Peter using Joel and David here? I had to do a lot of work to figure all that out. These devout Jewish men and women, many of them already had this. They already had a, the bedrock of this knowledge. It was partly what their hope was built upon. And so that's what Peter is specifically addressing. And he's also specifically addressing their sin, which we, not in the same way, they directly were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We are, it's in a different kind of category where we're responsible. We too have all sinned, and that did cause Jesus to go to the, have to go to the cross, but but it wasn't the exact same as them, wasn't it? And so he made a very convincing argument from Scripture to people that was culturally relevant, timely relevant, where they understood what Peter did to them was prove to them that the Messiah would be resurrected. That's not the same stumbling block that everybody has, is it? Your atheist co-worker, his stumbling block to faith in Jesus Christ wasn't a misunderstanding of who the Messiah was in this same sense, was it? 
No. You see how Peter's crafting an argument here that led to the conviction of their sin and a call to repentance? My point is simply this. So often we make the mistake of thinking that when an argument is presented in a culturally relevant way to convict somebody of their sins, that somehow we're not preaching the gospel. One of the critiques of us at Crosspoint, or even me personally, if you will, is don't preach about abortion, just preach the gospel. You have greatly misunderstood what we are doing when we make a compelling argument that all human beings are made in God's image. And for any number of reasons, it is not right for us to kill one made in God's image. And when presented in a compelling way, and hearers of this message say, what must I do then? The response is, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how these issues are gospel issues? And we must be bold to preach a number of them. When we identified the stumbling blocks to saving faith in our culture, we must be just as bold and just as wise as the disciples were to create biblically and culturally relevant, compelling messages to convict people of the sin that leads them to repentance. Josiah, would you come and lead us in a final song?